Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I'm good. <laughs> Yourself? I'm, as I said, I'm pretty good, actually. I've got, I've got, I've got smart people like you to help me calm down <laughs> about, calm, calm down about the world. <laughs> so, uh, what I, what I'm going to do is, um, we've got uh, some headlines. I'm going to, I'm going to tick off about a minute's worth of rhetoric and stuff that people are saying, and then I'm just going to have it launch into it. And uh, my last line will be, Stephen, you just wrote a piece in the Asia Times concluding that chances for a peaceful resolution look further away than ever. Yeah. And I'm going to just say, let's start there. And then if you two can, you two can play jazz with this and I'll jump in. Yes. I'm going to argue there isn't a defensive and won't be in the foreseeable future. So we can go back and forth on that. <laughs> well, love it. Love has, it. Has Putin talked to you about it? Uh, no, but the Chinese have. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Okay, good. Well, let's let's save this for the show. Let me jump right in here. Okay. Um, let me get this thing opened here. Okay. Let me just. Uh, with my... Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to the Bill. Bill Wal <clears throat> let's start that over. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, according to most accounts, Russia is mounting a major winter offensive into Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky says Ukraine will not surrender one square meter of land to Russia. Russia demands that the world accept the territorial acquisitions they've already claimed. Uh, just today, President Putin made uh, Putin Biden Putin. <laughs> Maybe Putin made a surprise visit. President Biden just made a surprise visit to Kyiv and pledged more military aid. Um, adding to the mix, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken says that China is actively considering lethal support, lethal support to aid Russia against Ukraine. And Secretary Lindsey Graham, always helpful, says the U.S. should declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism and start training Ukrainian pilots on how to use and fly um, F-16 fighter jets. Uh, Kamala Harris, vice president, she's formally declared Putin's Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism as well and has committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. And the United States State Department has told American citizens to leave Russia immediately. And so far, the United States has vetoed all peace initiatives in a war-ending settlement. Um, to this average man in the street, this looks beyond grim. And so to sort this out where this might be going, I've asked Stephen Bryan and David Goldman uh, back to join, to join and follow up our conversation we had a few weeks ago. Stephen, as you all recollect, is a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy in the Yorktown Institute, and David is a Spingler columnist and deputy editor for the Asia Times and PJ Media. Uh, Stephen, you just wrote a piece in the Asia Times concluding that the chances for a peaceful resolution look further away than ever. Let's start there. Sure, I, I think we can. Uh, well, as you know, the, the big battles in in uh, uh, Ukraine right now are going badly for the Ukrainians. Uh, that's around Bakhmut, which is a city in Luhansk district on the uh, fringe of it. And the Russians have made uh, significant gains, uh, very significant gains, and they're pretty close to cutting off support, uh, supply support to the city by cutting the main roads within a few kilometers now. So I would not be surprised to see the city fall in the next few weeks, maybe sooner, or the Ukrainians pull out. Mr. Zelensky uh, uh, today, in fact, said that maybe this is not the battle to the death. Maybe we better uh, consider saving lives. So, so I think the bottom line is that the Ukrainians now recognize that they're about to lose uh, Bakhmut. And, and that's a critical city because it offers a launching pad for Russian forces to, to move across uh, the center of Ukraine 
toward the Dnieper River and toward Kiev. So that's, that's essentially where the battle lies at the moment. There have been a lot of casualties in that battle, but uh, basically it's a defensive battle from the Ukrainian point of view. They have very little offensive punch left. They tried one uh, assault in the southern part of Bakhmut with some limited success, but that's been partly driven back already and probably will be in the next few days completely eliminated. Uh, Ukrainians are, are, are out of uh, out of ammunition. They're out of uh, air power. They're out of air defenses. Their artillery is running low. I think it's a very grim situation for them. David, you've 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 expressed some skepticism that uh, Russia's mounting invasion may not not even happen. Um, that would be a minority report from everything I've been reading. What's uh, what's your take? Well, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, declared four weeks ago that Russia is in the midst of a major offensive, and he's repeated that each week, and the Western media has said Russia is in the middle of or preparing a major offensive. Uh, I think there are two very good reasons why Russia uh, is not going to conduct a major offensive in the sense of the kind of January 1945 massive assault which the Russians undertook against the Germans. Remember, until January 1945 in World War II, uh, Zukov largely conducted defensive operations to prevent encirclement of uh, Russian forces and maintain their integrity. It was only after the Germans were seriously degraded after the Battle of Kursk that they went uh, on a full-scale offensive. The two reasons are, number one, Russia simply doesn't have enough manpower to conduct an offensive. Uh, it's brought about 250,000 troops into the area. Uh, it had done its initial um, invasion of Ukraine with 120,000 and came to grief uh, through inadequate manpower. It lost a lot of territory it initially took and regrouped and successfully reduced its front lines by a very large margin, by more than half, uh, and then proceeded to conduct a, a war of attrition against Ukrainian forces uh, in Donbass. Uh, it would be quite some time, probably months, before Russia could even consider a serious offensive just based on the amount of troops. But the most important thing, I think, which is a point made by uh, a leading Chinese military analyst in the website Observer a couple of days ago, is, quote, the Russian army believes that the existing war of attrition is enough to shake Ukraine's will to resist and create a favorable ratio of exchange of casualties for the Russian army. In that sense, I basically agree with Steve's point that the Ukrainians who had the worst of it, in a war of attrition, the side with the larger resources wins arithmetically. Russia has a population four or five times that of Ukraine, depending on how you count the refugee situation. Uh, although Ukraine has mobilized virtually its whole military manpower, um, the casualties taken by both sides are comparable. Uh, in the Bakhmut battle and the battles around it, uh, the casualty rate is probably similar on both sides. So over time, Ukraine will be degraded. Uh, although the United States has done some talk about upgrading arms capabilities, as Steve points out, there are shortages of ammunition on the Ukrainian side. Russia produces I've heard estimates of nine to 15,000 artillery shells per day. The United States produces 15,000 per month. And if you throw in all the rest of NATO, it might be 30,000 a month. So Russia's arms industry is, a, is an order of magnitude more productive than that of the combined West. It would take a very long time yeah. to change that. So Russia does not need to risk to bet the farm, let's say, on offensive, because when you exposed your forces by breaking through and attempting to encircle the enemy, you can be encircled yourself. That's an extremely risky gamble. Uh, they tried that before, and they got their heads handed to them. So the more cautious and more certain strategy for Russia 
at least for the next several months, is to keep grinding the Ukrainians down. So uh, I think we'll see more of the same degradation of Ukrainian forces, high levels of casualties on both sides, but casualties which the Ukrainians will have much more difficulty replacing than the Russians. Well, what's the end game for both sides? Because Zelensky declaring uh, not another square square meter of land uh, when they've already ceded quite a bit. And, and now uh, Russia, even if they're not uh, mounting a, an offensive, it looks like their end game is still to control an awful lot of uh, Ukraine. And so where, where, where does this, uh, how does this thing resolve itself? Well, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, I think it's not territorial, it's, it's political. They want NATO out of Ukraine. Uh, they want a neutral Ukraine and a pro-Russia Ukraine. That's their goal. Uh, I mean, Putin's made that very clear. Virtually every Russian commentator, for what it's worth, say more or less the same thing. Uh, so I think that's their goal. Uh, whether they can achieve it, it's a different story. That's uh, open to question. But at least that is where they're going. Uh, does that mean they have to take, you know, David's point about a war of attrition, a long war like that, um, is a possibility, but it doesn't look that way to me. Uh, it looks to me like the Russians want to get something done decisively before there is actual Western intervention in the war, which is, I think, something that's worrying Moscow. So you can fight a war of attrition all day if the other guys don't have some ace up their sleeve. If, if it turns out the 101st Airborne gets into the fight, which is forming up in Romania, uh, then you have a different kind of picture. And, and the Russians are very nervous about that. And they don't trust NATO. They don't trust the United States at all. Uh, and that's where we are. Well, did I hear the 101st Airborne, Airborne that would be United States Army? Yeah parachuting into Russia or parachuting into Ukraine to help them to fight alongside the Ukrainians? The Russians are speculating that the key property, if you want, for the United States is Odessa. And so far, Odessa has been mostly out of the war. It's a key to the Black Sea. Uh, and there's U.S. US has been improving uh, the port facilities there for U.S. warships for some time. Um, and the, the, some speculation, and it's only speculation, is that that if Russia, if Ukraine really gets squeezed, the U.S. is going to try to come in and hold on to certain parts of Ukraine that are strategically important, and and Odessa would be pretty much first on the list. The uh, the David, let me ask you a question. I'd love to have you answer. You, you talk about NATO and NATO response. I mean. How does the Nord Stream story reported out by Cy Hearst affect the, uh, the level of trust inside NATO? Because you've got the reports the United States blew up the pipeline between Germany and Russia, actively interfering in a commercial relationship um, to really a, a further our own ends. Now, that's oh. one side of the report. Is that, does that have a... a, a, a a potentially shattering effect on NATO? And do we end up, second part of the question is, do we end up with some sort of uh, coalition of the willing fighting this war, including Poland? The Cy Hearst story about a joint U.S.-Norwegian operation uh, has been questioned in some of its details. And Hirsch, of course, is not citing sources. Uh, that story has been circulating in NATO military circles for many months. We've heard it. Many other news outlets have heard it. We didn't publish it because we couldn't verify the details. We simply had anonymous sources. We chose not to run with the story. Hirsch decided to run with the story whose details may or may not be credible. But the broad outlines of the story that the United States was behind the destruction of Nord Stream 2 are universally believed by uh, the European media. It's a gigantic story in Germany. It's as uh, you know, big as the balloon story in the United States. And it's led to you know, a lot of uh, grumbling on the part of the Germans about the, um, 
action of the United States. So certainly, yes, it hurt NATO. Did it? Uh, will that by itself shatter NATO? Of course not. If that were true, we already would have seen the impact. Uh, but it is a problem. Uh, I, I would like to go back to your question, though, of how this thing ends. And we, we don't know. Yeah. One way it could end is that there's a North Korea-South Korea kind of divide, ceasefire in place, no war, no peace. They simply stop shooting because the Ukrainians are exhausted and the Russians are able to hold enough of the territory that they annexed in order to declare a certain kind of victory. Another way this could happen is the 101st could come in, or I think more likely than that, uh, the Ukrainians are given long-range artillery, like the small-diameter Boeing bomb that uh, we're supposed to be providing them. And they use that to destroy major Russian infrastructure, like the Kersh Bridge, which connects the Russian mainland to Crimea. Uh, the Russians, at the same time, might destroy the bridges over the Dnieper in order to um, uh, prevent Ukraine from acquiring the tanks that are being sent to it. I mean, it's, they're, they're, these are 60-ton monsters, and it's hard to get them across a major river without a bridge. Once you start destroying major Russian infrastructure, uh, you risk the possibility of widening the war. And when uh, not just Lindsey Graham, but the Vice President of the United States says that Russia is guilty of war crimes, in effect, you're sending like Franklin Roosevelt in World War II saying unconditional surrender is the only possible outcome because we have a criminal regime that has to be destroyed. You have you know, any number of American entities, so like the Hudson Institute last week held a conference preparing for the dissolution of the Russian Federation. So in effect, we're telling the Russians this is an existential war. I don't believe the Russians are easily disposed to using nuclear weapons. But if you tell the Russians, we're going to destroy the regime and dissolve the Russian Federation, if that's what the Russians believe our war objective is, then nuclear weapons certainly could come into play. And then we're in a very dangerous world. Can I stick my nose in here a little bit? Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, it's, it seems to me that that David has just argued against his earlier position about, about a, a war of attrition. That's that to say, the, the Russians have strong motives to try and end this war, if they can, by military means, as soon as they can. And I think that's what they're going for. Uh, at least all the indications are that. They have built up a force of about 400,000 men behind. That's not in the fight yet. That, that is partly sitting on Russian territory and part of it's up in the, the Belarus. Um, and it's been moving around. The Russians do a game about moving things around. So it's hard to say what their objective is going to be and where they're going to attack from. Uh, I provided you a, a, a notional map uh, that you have. Well, let's take a look at that. Cauldron. It's called the cauldron. The cauldron, okay. The cauldron. And if you put it up, you can see uh, some speculation by some pretty smart people, not me, but pretty smart people about how the Russians may launch an attack with these extra forces. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right, some of it's coming from the north, some of it's coming from the east, because once Bakhmut's gone, they're going to have a free shot through that area. The Ukrainians will have very great difficulty mustering another defensive line. And then up from the from Zafaritsa, from, from the south, uh, moving again in the direction of Kiev. Uh, the point being of this invasion would be to break the Ukrainian army so that it can't fight effectively. And and I I have I mean I don't know what Putin's going to say in his speech to the to the to the Russian Duma uh, how he's going to characterize the, the next steps in this conflict, but uh, I think that's where they're going. And, and, I, and I think they are in a hurry because, as David says, well, you know, the U.S. may start plugging in. They already said they're going to small, small uh, diameter bombs and longer range missiles, uh, high Mars missiles and all this stuff, if we have enough to give, which is another issue. 
but well, ha we we made we talked about this last time. It hasn't that what David pointed out the the war crimes and implicit the Nuremberg trial, uh, Nuremberg style trials. Uh, haven't we really solidified Putin's support in Russia and make them more intransigent than ever? Well, he certainly closed the door. I mean, by by uh, uh, cutting off Russian Russians from any kind of dialogue and and relationship with the West, plus the accusations of war crimes, plus all the rest, uh, you've made a dialogue virtually impossible. That's for sure. It, yeah, it, it, it's worth mentioning, as of course is widely reported, that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, a year ago, went to Moscow, spoke to Putin, believing that he had the backing of the United States, came back with what he thought was a formula for a compromise, and was sandbagged by the United States by Washington and London, as Bennett complained uh, quite vocally in a recent interview. Yes, well, it, seems, it seems like your argument, your, your thought of a North Korea, South Korea type of partition would be a sensible one if we had some grown-ups in charge, but I fear in this administration we have really the it's really an amateur hour and and a, and a lot of ideologues and i don't i'm not sure they really can engineer something like that i, I worry about who's playing for our side it, it's i agree i agree with you bill uh, it's not so much a matter of engineering it it's a matter i think of living with yeah. it because that would allow putin to say well we won we had a special military operation we wanted to protect the russian speakers in the donbass we've annexed these territories we've managed to keep most of them, just as North Korea could, in a sense, declare victory in the Korean War and say, you know, we, the imperialists uh, failed to destroy us. Um, Putin can claim victory, and it would be a major humiliation for the war party in the United States, that is, the regime change party, which is led by people like Undersecretary Victoria Nuland, who has yeah. been a prominent advocate for regime change in Russia for the last decade and more. Right. That's correct. I mean, I think that that's why I'm so pessimistic about any chance of a negotiation of any sort. Uh, the only other possible negotiation would be if the Ukrainian army surrenders and asks for peace talks. They ask for, you know, an armistice um, without the United States. That can't be ruled out because they're taking a terrible beating. But, you know, when when you have the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and now the President of the United States saying Russia's lost the war already. Well, well I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just imagining being Zelensky in that meeting with Biden today, taking Biden's measure as a as a 80 year old. Uh, uh, Careful with the age stuff. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Let's not do age. Really, be careful. Just, just taking a measure. Taking, take. I'm the same age. I, 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 I stand corrected. I need to. I'll, I'll drop the octogenarian. Wash your mouth out with some soap, yeah, please. Okay. Now, I can. I'm old enough to remember the Pentagon reading out the body count during the Vietnam War uh, every day during the 1960s and declaring that the North Vietnamese were losing yeah. until they did. Until they won. Yeah. What about the Chinese now? I mean, where are we? Uh, the, the the thing that Blinken goes on the a morning talk show and talks about the Chinese are planning on providing lethal lethal aid to uh, oh, Russia. Okay. What is that about? If, if we have reporters as opposed to echo chamber bots, some would have said, can you name one weapon that the Russians want that the Chinese have that they don't have themselves? The Chinese don't make heavy battle tanks. They make light tanks, which are you know, designed to fight the Indians in the Himalayas. Uh, they certainly don't have anything they can ship there. Uh, you've got quadrocopter drones, the same kind that hobbyists use, that the Russians use for spotting. Uh, the Chinese are certainly sending tons of spare parts, aircraft parts, uh, computer chips, and so forth, to uh, Russia, but not directly. Turkey's buying them, and Turkey is transshipping them, and they turn up as $25 billion of errors and omissions on Turkey's balance of payments. They're very hard to trace. But the Chinese buy Russian weapons. There are no Chinese weapons that the Russians want 
that they could source in China. I, I, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of anything. Well, I agree. But what would Blinken's motive be to come on Sunday morning shows and talk about this? That seems to be, again... He wants to look tough against the Chinese, just propaganda. Yeah, I agree. Wang Yi is now in Moscow or is arriving in Moscow this week. He's the, the key foreign policy guy for China. Uh, the Chinese want to stay close to the Russians. Uh, I don't think there's any politically, that's for sure. But I would just mention one thing which we haven't talked about, which is the fact that as we keep uh, shifting our weapons supplies, what's left of them, into Ukraine, we're exposing ourselves in the Pacific. It's a very it's a very dangerous thing to do. It's almost unprecedented that we would do something like that. And by the way, we're also weakening European defense because when you when you burn all this stuff up, you have nothing left. I mean, now the the Germans are saying we don't have anything. The British are saying we don't have anything. We haven't had anything for a long time. Um, uh, there were no real war stocks because, well, after all, we weren't engaged in a, any kind of conflict for a long while. And, and well, the bottom line is that that that, that the, what's happened is that there are very little in the way of war supply capabilities in Europe or the United States. That's where uh, we are. I am, I'm reliably told that uh, the Germans have in inventory 3,000 howitzer shells and no more. 3,000. 3,000. That's enough for breakfast in Ukraine. Exactly. And, yeah. and their so, tanks are, you know, they're talking about tanks. Now everyone's uh, figuring out that they don't have any tanks at work. I mean, oh, we have 100 tanks. Maybe 10 of them are operational. So what are you going to do with that? What about the notion of a coalition of the willing? The um, I, I, I read that uh, the, the Poland has called up 200,000 or maybe calling up 200,000 reservists to active duty, um, seemingly arming uh, for action. Well, I don't know what the polls are going to do, uh, but, but if but I were advising but, them, but, I'd but, tell but, them that you don't but, want to fight the, the Russians. But, but they're right there, and it just seems like we've got all these people acting. Uh, they also have some of their own ambitions. You know, they have, a, they yeah. have an interest in, in that western part of Ukraine because it used to be Polish. Wouldn't their dream of half half of uh, you know the Western Ukraine is Polish, and we'll just give the other half to Russia? Could be. Um, the, the, the the Western Ukrainians and the Poles in particular have some really bloody history between sure. them. There were, the, there were perhaps a hundred thousand Poles murdered by the Stefan Bandera Ukrainian nationalists, which the Poles remember bitterly. So. I think there are probably parts of uh, Western Ukraine to paraphrase, uh, paraphrase Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca that the Poles wouldn't want to invade. Um, <laughs> the most important thing that happened with NATO in the past two weeks, which barely got reported in the uh, American press, is that there was supposed to be a tank coalition, which included Germany, Denmark, Holland, Spain, and Finland, who would all give tanks to Ukraine. Now, Germany plus, Poland, plus Poland. Plus Poland. Yeah. Um, those are going to be older tanks. Uh, you had some Leopard 2s sitting around in Denmark and Holland and Finland, but Denmark, Holland, and Finland have decided they can't spare their tanks and are not going to give any tanks to Ukraine. And uh, so the Spanish, you don't have much to begin with, so they're not going to give anything. So the Germans, German press last week said, gee, all of a sudden, we're standing here by ourselves. We thought we had a coalition. <laughs> and now everyone's backed out on it. So if anything, despite all the rhetoric, uh, NATO members have been backtracking on their commitment to Ukraine, uh, rearming Ukraine in the last couple of weeks in a significant way. That's about 50 fewer tanks than the Ukrainians expected to get. Yeah, and as, and as Schultz is complaining about it, you know, the German chancellor saying, hey, hey, hey they promised, and now they've, they've unpromised. But is, it, look, these tanks aren't going to make any difference in the war anyway. Is Zelensky an independent actor here? I mean, I we talked last time. There, I'd heard that he has 
last March 2022, he was willing to negotiate a settlement and Valerie Newland wouldn't let him do that or Victoria Newman, whichever. And that uh, the U.S. has been the hardliner here in terms of bringing this thing to an end. At what point could Zelensky say, we've seen enough Ukrainians fight and die, it's time to uh, time to call, call it quits? That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the Ukrainian army decides that Zelensky is expendable and you either put him on a plane to... Uh, his teaching job at the University of Wisconsin or wherever he ends up, and or you have a DM situation like in Vietnam. Stephen? Well, I, I, I don't know how it will, whether it will result in that or, or not, but I think that there, there's, you know, as the supply of ammunition dries up, which is happening already, uh, it makes it almost impossible for the Ukrainians to continue the war. I mean, that's that's a reality. There just isn't any more in the cupboard to send there. And and then even if the Russians don't bomb the rail lines or the you know, transit through Poland or other ways to get arms into to Ukraine, the, there aren't any arms to get into Ukraine. What are you going to do? I mean, I think that this Bakhmut battle kind of shows where we're heading. Well, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and that looks like... A, a, the disaster for the Ukrainians. Well, is, is Bakhmut Stalingrad or is it Verdun? I read an interesting piece comparing it to Verdun. Well, I, Verdun I, saw the, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's in, in the Russian mind, it's much more like Stalingrad. Yeah. Verdun, of course, the German strategy was to bleed the French to death. It was to inflict casualties. Mm -hmm. uh, the Germans might have succeeded in a war of attrition against France had not the United States come in and introduced a couple of billion troops and massive amounts of, uh, of materiel, which turned the tide in the Allies' favor. Um, I still believe that with uh, rough parity of Ukrainian and Russian forces in the Bakhmut area, the standard formula, which is three to one concentration of forces locally for the attacker does not yet apply. The Russians could build up more, and some months down the road, they might have sufficient manpower. But as we're looking at the ground now, the simple numerical situation of the Russians does not permit a major offensive. doesn't mean they won't threaten. Uh, the threat is often mitered in the execution. You want to threaten an offensive in many directions, to prevent the other side from concentrating forces. They've got many bases to cover. They've got to keep their forces dispersed. So I think the threat of the offensive will be a Russian instrument throughout. But again, I don't expect an actual offensive uh, anytime soon. Well, we'll find out, won't we? Um, pretty soon. I mean, one way or the other. But but uh, I, I don't think you can keep uh, four or 500,000 troops sitting on the sidelines for very long. Either you use them or send them home. Um, uh, that's one thing. But beyond that, I think the Russians smell a real opportunity now. They've degraded the Ukrainian Air Force almost to the point it no longer exists. They have destroyed a lot of the Ukrainian air defenses. They're, they're minimal. They are doing a good job of knocking out the Ukrainian artillery and especially counter-battery radars, which were essentially for targeting the artillery on Russian forces. Um, the, Russian, the Ukrainian strategy is mostly to try and dig in and hold lines. They have very little offensive capability. Their casualties, as David says, are about equal to the Russians, but the problem here is that they don't have the manpower to go with it. Some people say they're on their third army. They've been They've certainly been dragooning people off the streets and they've been shooting deserters and doing a lot of awful things to try and build up some forces. So I think they're in desperate shape. And I think the Russians know it. And the Russians have their, put their act together pretty well. So uh, I, I think it's grim, period. Grim, do, you grim. Think, do you think that our ever helpful Lindsey Graham is going to convince people that F-16s um, that we would teach Ukrainians how to fly would uh, be the next step? Well, you know, the, the F-16 is a really good airplane, but
but it's a fourth generation fighter. Uh, it really can escape air defenses very well. Uh, Russians have in-depth air defenses that they're moving more and more into the, toward the center of Ukraine. So yeah, they can bring them in, but uh, whether they would make a difference in the war, I don't, I don't think so. It's also the case that even a relatively experienced fighter pilot who's flown, say, a MiG-29 would take typically a year's training yeah. to be effective in the uh, in the uh, F-16. And it's not simply the fighter pilot. The F-16 depends on a huge amount of ground support, communication, the whole kill chain, which is a lot of logistics and a lot of training of ancillary personnel. So. That's not something that would, even if it would make a difference, at some point, it wouldn't make a difference soon enough to turn the tide. Well, the thing that's so disheartening to this civilian observer is we've got all these, the political class making all these incredibly reckless statements and then shooting off about this or that, we're going to do this. And I guess the U.S. ambassador, maybe I mentioned at the outset, said that, uh, you know, China's involvement would be a red line. You know, we've heard about red lines from our politicians before. <coughs> it just seems like, I, you know, my concern is we don't have anybody that's that's has the has the temperament or or wisdom to try to bring this to a resolution. Right. I agree with that. The, the the only voices of caution that we've heard are from the uniformed military. Uh, mm -hmm. In November, uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff told the New York Economic Club that the war was unwinnable on the ground. He reiterated that statement. Uh, apparently, he's been told to change his tune because in the interview he gave uh, at the Pentagon uh, last week, which is available at defense.gov, he said, the Russians are losing. And someone asked him, oh, he said, oh, a terrible situation. This is horrible there. It's really awful. But the Russians are losing. It was a uh, They've been defeated. Painful interview to read. Yeah. Yes, they're defeated, right? Painful. Yeah. And Austin said the same thing. Uh, and now Biden is saying the same thing. That's their mantra. Um, it's, look, I think it's unreal. I mean, I think they're crazy. If we think about all the players we've mentioned, do we have a leader in the middle of that group that is, is actually going to... I haven't seen one. I, I don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, Biden's to... using it as a political campaign, uh, you know, campaign slogan. I I stood by Ukraine. I we're with them all the way. We're going. You know. Well, yeah. I... Forget all about Afghanistan. Look what we're doing for Ukraine. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, well, of course, he has to live down that one, doesn't he? Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 tragic for the Ukrainian people. It's really oh. tragic. Yeah, Lindsey Graham is a diatomable neoconservative who has cheered every silly foreign adventure we've ever had the mis misfortune to undertake. So he's not necessarily representative of the whole of the Republican Party. There is uh, certainly on the Republican right in the, if you will, the America first Trump oriented part of the Republican Party, an enormous amount of skepticism about this war. Trump has said various things about it, but I think he was right to say that in his watch, it never would have happened because he would have found a way to give the Russians an out. He was willing to live with the Russians where the global utopians of the Biden administration want regime change. And some of them, at least, if not all of them, want the dissolution of the Russian Federation. So my hope is that before this thing gets out of hand and risks a real catastrophe, that the presidential campaign will draw out from uh, America-centric Republicans a more realistic foreign policy view. Yeah, the problem is that people in political campaigns usually go the other way. They think that holding up the the bloody flag is the way to, to go, and, 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 and it's, it's not likely to be a productive debate. Uh, at least I don't think so. Um, and I, I don't understand. I, mean, I think you know, we've lost our sense of strategy in this country, what's strategically important to us. Ukraine was never strategically important to us ever. 
then we've made it into something it's not. Um, and, and, and that's foolish. That's foolish. And, and now we've got ourselves in a trap because if the Russians actually are successful, as I kind of think they will be, uh, it's going to have terrible consequences for Europe and for NATO, which is very important to our security here. So we've, we've risked an awful lot in, in this conflict that we didn't need to risk. This could have been settled in 2015. We had a basis for settlement with the Minsk II agreements at the time, uh, and the United States refused to participate in it. And it hasn't changed since. No, I agree with Steve completely there. So uh, if I could make it, you two agree to come back in six to eight weeks when we find out whether the winter offensive has taken place, I think this is this seems to be grinding out much more slowly than than we'd all hoped. And we'll have to we'll have to wait for events to become events to know where we are. But uh, in between now and then, do you see any trigger that would make this thing get very hot right away? Or are we just going to watch this thing wander down this war of words and attrition? Well, critical will be whether the Ukrainians are able to destroy infrastructure inside Russia and the Kersh Bridge, which was, of course, damaged by a Ukrainian sabotage operation by a boat that was floated under it and blew up. Well, that would be the thing to watch. Uh, the Ukrainians don't have the capability to hit it with long-range artilleries. You may recall a weapon system called Attackens. It's a, basically a long-range rocket. We were supposed to give the Ukrainians. Then we found out that Lockheed stopped making them in 2007. We have <laughs> 3,000 of the rockets left in inventory, and some of them might even still fire. So we decided that we, we can't give that to them. How effective the small diameter Boeing bomb will be, that I, I really don't have enough information about that. But the, the real trigger for expansion of the war would be Ukrainian attacks on key Russian infrastructure deep inside Russia, which would lead to significant retaliation. That's what most worries me. Of course, if the Ukrainian army were to collapse, uh, which I don't think it will immediately, I mean, it, it's uh, we simply don't know, or Steve may, I don't have enough information, but certainly if the Ukrainian army were to collapse in panic, uh, there is the possibility that the United States might deploy the 101st Airborne, but I don't think that would be a good idea. <laughs> well, it's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Yeah. Look, the problem, David, is yeah. that, that what's going to tell the tale here is supplies, is logistics and supplies. Yes. And, and, and I don't know how you how do you fight without bullets? Yep. And That's plus the plus the fact that American forces haven't fought a peer in a long time. The Ukrainians probably fight a lot better than any American unit could at this point. We've only fought goat herds for the past 40 years. So I'm not sure how well American troops would perform, and that would be a real risk to take. I, I don't think the United States can fight in Ukraine at present without the full capabilities. You, know, you have to build up all the logistics, all the capabilities. It would take years. It's not going to happen. Uh, the only thing you'll possibly see are two things. There's two risks from the U.S. side. One is the U.S. commits air power to try and save the Ukrainians from defeat. That can't be ruled out. And, and, and the second is that the U.S. tries to grab some pieces of Ukraine thinks of, of strategic significance, then that can't be ruled out. But, the, but both of those things involve a war in Europe. There's no way out of it because it, it is the same thing, even without NATO agreeing, it's, it's a war in Europe. So I don't, I don't think the Russians will stand for that. Um, so where are we? We're gonna wait it out. I think Biden's praying that this thing lasts until he's out of office. That's all. Well, and he wants to run for re-election. Well, that, yeah, well, that, yeah, maybe <laughs> that can't happen. <laughs> uh, we're well. Let's uh, let's. Uh, any final? That sound like pretty close to wrapping it up, Stephen. David, you want to add anything to that, and then we'll get out of here for our for our next conversation in, in a bit. We need a realist foreign policy. Donald Trump 
of whom I have a long list of criticisms, uh, managed to get out of office with no real important conflicts with the Russians, with a peace agreement between Israel and some of the Gulf states, and a generally stable world. The global utopians, led by the likes of Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland, have plunged us into a war which could take us into a real catastrophe. And the best outcome would be a humiliation for the United States, because we stuck our neck out and we've got to bring it back. So that's going to hurt. It's going to sting no matter what we do. That's so to say the best case scenario is uh, strategic humiliation for the US is not pleasant. The one thought I have is that the North Vietnamese did us a big favor in 1975. They humiliated us before the Soviet Union did, and they motivated <laughs> us to rethink our military, start a, a campaign to transform military technology, which succeeded and won the Cold War. So perhaps. The Russians will do us a favor and humiliate us before China does. Well, that's, I don't know if that's a favor. <laughs> I think the other way, other way around. I, I wish this could be settled. I think that this is crying out for a political settlement. It's absolutely crying. It's in our international interests, in our strategic interests, and in our. Uh, our leadership interests in the world, which is all important, that we settle this thing. And the lack of desire by Biden and his people, all of them, to want to settle it is really disgraceful, in my personal opinion. Okay, that's a wrap. We, it's, I'm, I'm glad you guys are following this, so I don't have to as much. But every time we dip into this, it looks bleaker. But uh, we will we will per, we will persevere and uh, and and work our way through to the next time we get together. Dr. Stephen Bryan, David P. Goldman, uh, Center for Security Policy, and um, Asia Times, respectively. Thanks, thanks Thank for uh, joining and explaining um, explaining where we are with Ukraine and uh, and Russia. Well, Bill, it's uh, I would say it's a pleasure to talk to you. It would be a pleasure if we were talking about anything else. All right, I'll think about some other <laughs> topics for us. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> an excellent you, idea. So anyway, all of you that have been listening and watching, thanks for joining. This has been the Bill Walton Show. And uh, as as you know, you can find us on all the major podcast, podcast platforms, Substack, uh, on CPAC Now and Monday Nights. And uh, please send us uh, your comments either on Substack or our website, uh, thebillwaltonshow.com. We pay a lot of attention to what you want to hear about and uh, program accordingly. So anyway, thanks for joining and we'll talk soon. Thanks for the kind of attention. Thank you. <laughs> so you guys, you guys are good. <laughs> I don't know about that, but anyway. <laughs> well, David, good, good in, good in the sense that you know what you're talking about. That's, yeah, but uh, we're not going to quit our day jobs. <laughs> well, I'm not quitting my day job to webcast, it's, but it is a good way to get it, get 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 stuff out there that people don't ordinarily hear, and they're not hearing what we talked about um, from all. Oh, the you know the, the recording on the war is awful. Absolutely, yeah. I spend a lot of time tracking the war, and I have to look all over everywhere to to get you know reasonably decent amount of information. You're not finding it in the U.S. press. You're not finding it in the European press. Actually, I mean, it's it's just a. To some extent, they repeat Ukrainian propaganda because it's easy for them to just rewrite the press releases that come out of Kiev, but uh, that's about it. Or Modak. Or Modak. Modak. <laughs> Ministry of Defense of the U.K. Modak. They're awful. They're they're plain awful. Uh, yeah, the there, there are, country yeah, with no there, army, sure. no navy, uh, you know, really nothing, uh, no tanks, no nothing at all. <laughs> Telling the world, yeah. tell the world what to think about Ukraine. I mean, what a bunch right. of jokes. Uh, Elbridge Colby, who uh, used to be sort of a protege of mine, poor fellow, wrote a piece in the Daily Telegraph said the United States can't defend Europe, so Britain will have to. <laughs> 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 Britain, 
Britain has <laughs> exactly 33 battalions of regular infantry. That's 20,000 men. That might be enough to defend Kent or Sussex. Then what do you do about Leicester and Leeds? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, they're they're, they're uh, but the the latest reports, even from the British Defense Secretary, uh, I'm call him the Secretary Minister, uh, says that they're not equipped to fight anymore. I mean, he's been very blunt about it. So here you got this bellicose nonsense on the one side, and then you have the admission that they lack the capability. Period. Yes, it's like that wonderful, uh, the, the the second act finale of the Pirates of Penzance. Go ye heroes, go to glory, go and die in combat gory. You shall live in song and story. Go ye heroes, go and die. <laughs> what was the famous song in, in the, David, you know better than me, about the, the, the Admiral sings a song. Oh. Uh, the major general. I'm the very I model of a modern major general. Another kings of England. I quote the Bible historical for marathon waddle in order categorical. You got it. Uh, I, it sounds like we all love these these great plays and these old movies. I think our next show is going to be about bringing all those into. <laughs> I didn't. I I tried to very. It was very hard for me not to compare uh, Lindsey Graham using a Warner Brothers Looney Tune. Uh, to Elmer Fudd, um, but you know the, the, the show gets around, and I, I don't want to. I, I didn't want that one. You <laughs> well, that's the other problem. <laughs> uh, the Congress is not an offset right now to this war. I mean, the Congress uh, is pro-war, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, overwhelmingly. I knew I should have taken that left-handed Albuquerque. <laughs> I gotta go. Okay, you yes, guys sir. are great. All right, we'll it's talk great, soon. Great okay, great. Yes, enjoyed fun. the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our interesting people page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return. We'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.